Let's read Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, then we'll pray together. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I adore you, God. I am so thankful for the opportunity to come and here in, in my family, Father, and be able to share the gospel, the, the word, Father God. I pray, Lord, that I do it uh, that I do it well, that I do it, God, in a way that shows the preparation and the uh, prayer and the heart and the passion that is in it, Father God. At the same time, I do want it to be deeply practical, Father. Um, it, there are times for shouts, Father God, and times for just exaltation. And I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thankful, Father God, for those times you give us in which we can just display this joy, but at the same time, Father God, we need on a, on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, God, to be taught how to live our lives. And so I pray, God, that this is one of the, the closing of a Bible study that was about that and so much more. I pray, God, that we will, we will uh, put an end to this so that we understand how all of it ties together and exactly those, God, those responsibilities we have to each other. I like being responsible for my brothers and sisters. I like to, to be responsible for more than just praying for them. I want to be involved in their lives. I want to be close, Father. I don't want to be separate from anybody. Bless us to be that. Even though we're small, Father God, bless us to know each other so well and love each other so well. God, that's what we're praying for. In the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord. Amen. And we have talked about that, folks, is the idea that we have a, a very unique definition. She's just going to take off one of these days. Isn't she? That's okay. I'm loving it. Do not, do not apologize at all. I am loving it. Yeah. As soon as she gets the knee thing down, it's going to be... No. No. She's fine. But what... And because you know how it is, they go from that to to being. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. That is the best. Don't photo not apologize. That is the best. That's why we're here. That's why we're fun because we've got lots of those. Now, unfortunately, they do stop doing that and do all the stuff that all the rest of them. No, just. I wasn't meaning yours. I really meant mine first. I remember when we first got here, two little fellas snuck up the stairs. And that was Caleb and Austin. And somehow, some way, they touched something that made this horrible, loud noise. And I'll never forget... You could just barely see their eyes over the rail. It was like this, do you know what I mean? All we saw were little heads like this. And I think Caleb said something like that. We all had our mad faces on or something like that. I remember what he said. What it was. So it did not start with anybody's. It's always been this way. Okay. It's always been this way. So nobody, nobody apologized. So look, we are talking about that very thing. We've, for a long time, I have been on what I think is the greatest kick of my ministry. And that is the idea that God does not want us to be a church but a family. The church in many ways is a word we invented to describe the congregation. And that, um, that the, the last thing we need to be is church as usual. What makes church as usual not durable 
and incredibly hard to lead and manage is that it is a collection of a whole bunch of individual families, many of which don't agree with each other, do not have the same priorities, don't, don't have the same goals, but one family of this has the same priorities and the same goals and the same leadership and acknowledges all those things. One family of this can spread the gospel around the globe. When we were twice as big, literally, we didn't manage to spread the gospel around the globe. We fought about it. Now we're raising up generations of children who don't ask, am I supposed to go, but want to know where am I supposed to go. Do you understand the difference in that question? Who just assume they're going to do missions. Who just assume they're going to, do, they're going to be discipled. Who just assume they're going to evangelize. We don't have, we, we're winning that battle. And it comes from being a church like that. It comes from being a family like that. Alright? So, the end of this is one statement. One statement. Um, it's, you get the notes? I have, um, it's actually the back, folks. What I did was I gave you last week and this week. Okay? So, so I gave you one months and months ago. This is the last, like, two pages of it. Okay? The last two pages of it. The first statement, when you get your sheet, um, I apologize that I did not do this plan. The first statement says this. Churches, the family, discipline their members lovingly when in sin, encourage their members when desperation and suffering are reality, pray for their members to be delivered by the hand of God, and in unison support the weakest and frailest, excuse me, Okay, be delivered by the hand of God, and in unison support the weakest and frailest among them as vital to the life and work of the entire congregation. As I prayed over it, <clears throat> I said, if there's any way I can define what it means for me to be a keeper of my brother Rudy, and for brother Rudy to be a keeper of me, it was that long sentence there with those ideas. <clears throat> and I do want to look at those things before we look at our focal passage again. <clears throat> Excuse me. In just a little detail. First, churches discipline their members lovingly when in sin. Folks, if there's one thing the ministry and especially the, the pastorate has taught me is that sin will metastasize in the body of believers. When leadership or individual, mem me, or individual members fall into sin, their sin has a nasty habit of replicating. It does. Their sin harms the body, does biological damage to God's people. It hurts us. We have a responsibility that begins with the stewardship of the souls of each other in those times in which we fall into sin. <clears throat> we watch each other. We are responsible for each other. And we have to be. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. 
none of us in this room can effectively live our lives in avoidance of sin. We will all sin. We all sin. Now, I know we have... and we talk about this all the time. I know we have a nasty habit of saying, oh, well, everybody sins. And what we mean by that, Miss Pansy, is that everybody sins and therefore I don't have to feel guilty about it. Well, everybody sins. Well, everybody does. Well, yeah, everybody does. And as my mama would say, you know, if everybody jumps in the lake, are you going to jump in the lake with them? Well, no, of course not. It's a ridiculous idea. We know we're going to sin. What I won't. Mr. Loris, is to sin as little as possible. I want for my sin to not cascade outward and do damage to those I love. Not just my family, but, but my family. I don't, want my, I don't want to lose control of my sin to such an extent that I'm unable to, to function as your pastor or as a father in my family. And I bet you want the same thing, don't you? You don't want to look up one day and realize that sin has made your life a shipwreck. Now, Brother Mike can't manage to do that by himself. But Brother Mike, plugged in with the men of this church, has a much better chance, doesn't he? Brother Mike, coupled with men who will walk with him, has a great chance of success. Brother Mike prayed for. Brother Mike taught in the Scriptures. Brother Mike supported and encouraged. Has that. I'm not going to study those passages on church discipline. They've been taught in this church, to be honest with you, ad nauseum. We've done that a lot. We've talked about that. You know how it works. But the spirit of church discipline is the idea that Jane has a responsibility for me and I have a responsibility for Jane. And that I depend on Jane because I need somebody watching out for my soul besides me. You know what I've learned about myself? I can be so incredibly blind. I can be so incredibly blind to so many things. With friends I've walked with, I can realize, my goodness, I should have seen that coming. But but Aubrey, I didn't see it. I think that's why we need the group. Do you understand? We need all sorts of perspectives on each other. Buddy needs to be watched by more than just Tony. Because Tony might miss something. But he might... Tony might miss it, but Joe might not. And for the same thing, Buddy's watching me. And Buddy might fall for my junk, but, but Ryan, his son, doesn't. And, and you're related. You're close. We need so many perspectives on us. Because if we don't have that, there's such an opportunity. Because one of the things I've learned is the only thing people are really good at keeping a secret is their sin. Right? We cover that stuff up great. We are wonderful at hiding things. It's hard to catch a brother when they are sinning. They're not just doing it in the street. So we need this. We need this dedication to a loving kind of discipline for sin. It's not wrong to tell your brother or your sister that they're sinning. It's right. It's right. Now, now the Scriptures outline it for us. Uh, Paul discusses it. He says, with a, you know, um, 
He says, with a spirit of gentleness. Now, I think one of the reasons why the church um, is so, not just this church, but every church I know, is so discipline averse is because we try to do discipline without the spirit of gentleness. Do you understand what I mean by that? We did it harshly. We did it mean-spiritedly. And Paul says, no, it's a spirit of gentleness. In fact, Paul is very clear. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What he really means by that more than, you know, he's so clear about it is, guys, everybody's not cut out to do it. You know, you know, Stephen may can spot it, but Buddy may be the person to go and tell him. Do you understand the, the difference in this? You know, there are people in our midst who are more blunt and less tactful than others. Is that okay to say? I think it's okay. It doesn't mean there's not a purpose for the blunt and the tactless. There's, I'm certain, a divine purpose for that. But everybody's not good at telling people bad news. In fact, I bet there's a lot of us in this room who don't want to tell people bad news, aren't there? Who hate to do it. Just hate it. I have to do it all the time, and I still hate it. Just hate it. I'm not confrontational. I'm the least confrontational person you'll ever meet. Hate doing it, but the, but the reality of life is sometimes you have to have loving confrontations, don't you? Everybody's not cut out for it. They're not. But the reality is, Paul's, Paul's outline here, there's some people that are spiritual, some people are just prepared for this. This is a duty that's theirs, and they're good at doing it. They're good at helping people pick up those pieces when confronted with sin. But now, there are other things that we, we need to make sure we look at. Um, discipline their members lovingly when in sin. Encourage their members when desperation and suffering are a reality. We don't just discipline each other, but we're also always encouraging each other. You know, I thought it was with, without Virginia here because Charles Ray being sick, have you noticed how she has just poured stuff into the band about praying for this person, this person, this person? She was nagging me today about praying for people. It was great. I loved every second of it. Because here's the reality. One of those things we do is encourage and pray for each other. That's one of those tasks with which we are, um, we are one of those uh, with which we are, you know, sworn by God to do. Now, and this is where I'm weird about it. And I have to confess these things. Is that, and you can ask, you can ask uh, uh, my, my wife. She'll be the first to tell you. I'm not super sensitive all the time over sickness like I should be. I'm just not. I'm just not. In fact, notoriously, every time my children looked peaked, I always said, what? They had... I said, science infection. It's just science infection. It's no big deal. You know, arm falls off. It's a science infection. You know... You know, they're laying on the floor, flopping and twitching, and foam's coming out of their mouth. It's a science infection. Don't worry about it. Throw up 15 times in a night. It's a science infection. Don't worry about it. I'll take them to the doctor. What I really was motivated less by the care of my children and more by the desire to not even pay a copay. Okay? That's really what's motivating all of this. All right? Because if you got, you'll just, they'll just get over it. All right? So, and I admit, and, and, and even with myself, I don't, I don't usually don't even want to admit I'm sick when I am. 
And I go to the doctor every three or four years, whether I need to or not. Okay? I mean, I just hate to... I just, I'm not that... But here's the thing. This is what life's teaching. One of those things you, as you grow, as you creep older, you say, look, one of these days you're going to get the point to where your health is, is the number one thing you pray about. Right? Am I wrong about that? And the health of people you've known your whole life becomes a very big deal, doesn't it? And what I'm telling you, what I'm admitting right now is this, is that this is one of those issues that I'm forced, trying to force myself through prayer and through study to grow up about. Because I'm not always, I'm not always, there's a lot of me that's, you know, just rub some dirt on it. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That's, that's not always sensitive to the things I need to be sensitive about. But here's the truth. The truth is, is that I'm going to be laid low one of these days. Because everybody is. Right? Everybody gets to a point in their life to where, I always quote her, Miss Dolores said this, and it was so, it was so, so adorable, and it was exactly right. She said that, she said that when you get to that point, to where you can't do something that you've always been able to do, it throws you for a loop. I'll never forget her saying this to me. Never forget it. And she may have forgotten it. I have not, Miss Dolores. And that is exactly right. Because I've been with it, been through it with men and women. I can't tell you me countless times in the dozen years I've been the pastor of this church. They're just fine until all of a sudden they can't do that one thing they've always done. And then all of a sudden they're just a wreck. I've been doing this my whole life. And then you have to figure out how to do it, how to live when you can't do that anymore. How to live when you can't stand up all the time. How to live when it hurts to sit down. How to live when pain becomes a constant reality. Now, I'm, I'm confessing to you, I do a terrible job of encouragement of this kind. And it is so needed among the body of believers. Because the body of believers is everybody from 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 their 90s to months in age, right? It's everybody. And we can't discipline, we can't love the body of believers and meet the needs of the body of believers if we don't meet, meet the needs of the body of believers at all ages. And it's a very self-centered thing for me to say it because eventually all of us are going to be the old folks. If Jesus tarries long enough, Grayson will be the old people. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? That all of us are dust, literally. And Grayson is the old man of the church. But listen, if Jesus waits long enough, it will absolutely happen, won't it? And so even those of us that have never had a sick day in our lives, never had a sick day in our lives, well, one of these days have that sick day, won't we? We didn't all start out like this, did we? It's caught us over time. So that's one of those that I, I first admit I do a terrible job of, but it's an, I believe it's an absolute solid fact that that's one of those things God wants the church for. Not just encouraging you know, young families and, and young marrieds and young moms and young dads and children, and, and, and every, but people of every age group all the way to the very, very, very top. We don't lose. We don't turn it back on anybody. Now, these are hard words for me to say because I feel like I, that's one of those things I fail at. 
but I'm not going to fail at it and then come in here and act like it's not something God told us to do because He told us, just told us to do it. It doesn't matter whether I'm failing or not. It's still true. But what else? Um, pray for their members to be delivered by the hand of God. We're praying for deliverance in this room. That's one of those great things. Because we have some people facing some things that are just catastrophic. I don't just mean encouraging people. I mean members with cancer. I mean marriages that are strained. I mean relationships with children or children themselves that are absolutely, you know, being just, you know, just those, those relationships being destroyed. And we're here to pray for deliverance. That we need to have intercessory prayer. That one of the things the church does is intercede in prayer for each other. We, we apply the power of prayer through the family of God to the problems of its people. And that the reality is this, we just simply don't do that enough. We don't acknowledge that enough. I'm not broken about it enough. At all. At all. And we must be. We must be. And in unison, I mean together, we support the weakest and frailest among us. Which means if we've got a, one of those members, and you're going to have those members, folks, that just never have a bad day, and they can handle every problem, and they know every verse, and they're just perfect. You ever had, been around those people? Make you sick a little bit, right? Just a little bit. Because they're just, they're just life's just perfect, and they're just good at everything. And you're going to have those people like me on the other end that are just a basket case. Every time you talk to them, you're like, man, I regret that. Because all we do is just spew on you, you know, all these, all these problems, right? And I'm joking, nobody regrets it. Please, tell us your problems. But the reality is this, is that, that Glenda, we're no stronger than our weakest member. We're, no, I said, we're tasked with not losing anybody. One of the great commands is that we're going we're gonna to do what he did. He didn't lose a single one. We're not here to lose people. And that we're no stronger than that one that, that is just starting out. That brand new teenager that, that we baptize on a Sunday is the measure of our strength as a people. And so what do we have to do? Pour into him. Work hard as we can. Build him up. Why? Because if we don't, we'll fail. That brand new marriage that we see consecrated here on this stage. Our, our family's no stronger than that marriage that's a month old. If it fails, if it suffers, see how church goes. Have we seen families fall apart in our, in our midst? Did it make us stronger? No, it hurt us. Every single time it has happened, it absolutely ripped the heart out of the church. We are no stronger than, our, than those who struggle the most within our midst. We're no stronger than that. We owe ourselves selfishly attention toward those who need us the most. Because if we don't, if we, if if they fail, we fail. We got to see them as vital to the life and work of the entire congregation. If I've got a sister or brother in this room that struggles, if I got a sister or brother in this room that's overcome with doubt or fear. I can't let them slide because I have to see them as vital. I have to see them as essential to what we're trying to do as people. I have to see the potential in everybody. Do you got me?
I have to see the potential. And everybody, you've got to see the potential. You've got to look. We've got to look at those young guys that are in that, um, that are in that youth group and say, my goodness, they might be a deacon one of these days. But see, you know, Stephen, that's what we do, though, is that we acknowledge those kids will be a deacon one of these days, but when we make them a deacon... We haven't ever spoken a word to them. We haven't really ever taught them. They don't know two things. It's like we make them a deacon to teach them something. But instead, we need to look at those young guys at 14, 15, 16 years of age. My son, others in this thing, think, one of these days, these are going to be the men of the church. And we better start to teach those guys right now and build those guys up right now. Because if we don't, we'll run into a day when these days when we don't have leaders. We don't have a single young man that we can call. Hey, I've been in churches that had one deacon. And he was way up in his 80s. They're one bout of sickness away from not having a single leader in their church. Not one. That so we better cultivate leaders. Ladies the same way. These little young ladies here, these young girls, I mean, far down is, is, is the you know, younger youth. We better start to look at this and say, look, we've got to pour into those kids. The, the pastors can't do all that. Because we look up one of these days and we don't have any female leaders. We don't have one. Because we'll all, you'll all be gone. You know, I, I think churches are terrible at planning for the future. I think we're terrible at imagining a day when we're not going to be here. But we've got to be consumed with planning for the future. We can't let Mike and Shay down with all that tribe of kids. Because as far as we, as much as we're praying, that tribe of kids will be here 40 years from now. When mom and daddy are in the nursing home, they'll be here as leaders in this church. And so will Kimberly and Stevens. So will mine. Your children, your grandchildren will be here. And we've got to prepare them. So it's a solemn duty. It's a very solemn duty. Now, just a little more, and then I'm, I'm just about as far as I imagine I'm going to get today. Let's see, I'm going the wrong direction. I apologize. There we go. Um, the biblical model for this God-centered regarding of the neighbor as someone worthy of our love and admiration... Now, I'm, I'm, I'm combining this together with the idea of, of, of neighborliness expressed within the Scriptures. Moses tells us in Leviticus 19.18, he says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, one of those things that we've talked about before, and I think you know, it's been, there's been a lot of kind of play about this as for in the Christian community, about this idea that so many of the problems that we face as a society are handled by that very idea that you love your neighbors yourself. Russell, why don't we go to Haiti and meet the needs of people, sometimes of which we never, sometimes we never even met them. Sometimes we go down and we see them one time and never see them again, right? 
When are we going to do that? Because we're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's a command that courses throughout the Scriptures. The, the, so much of the Gospels hinges on that notion right there. So that when we see this idea of brotherly love, of being a brother's keeper within the body of believers, we hinge it back to that idea at the very least at the beginning of neighborliness. Christian love expressed within the church is a function of the overall call to love the neighbor. The call is expansive and defining for the Christian community. Now what I mean by that is, it's defining for us in that this is one of those things. Why do we do what we do? Because we love our neighbors. We're going to be good neighbors. We're going to love our neighbors as ourselves because Jesus commanded us to do it. The Scriptures command us to do this. And it's expansive because it's not just um, Ryan and Katie go home and love the people who live right next door to you. It's not, it's not just Stephen and Kimberly go home and do something for their next door neighbor. It is that we're required to now biblically start to define what it means to be a neighbor. How far away is the neighbor? Now I think I've indicated we have neighbors in Haiti. We've got natives, we have neighbors in in Africa. Neighbors dwell on this planet. We may not have any any biblical requirement if there happen to be Martians. But if they're on this planet, they're our neighbor. If they're on this planet, we're commanded by the Scriptures to love them. Love being defined in the person of God and by the heart of God. So it's not some kind of weak nonsensical love, but it's real love. Simply put, it is hard to meet someone who's not a neighbor. Anybody you meet throughout your day is your neighbor. Black, white, ugly, pretty, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. They are your neighbor, biblically speaking. Okay? Therefore, entitled to the protections of the neighbor. This is outside the body of believers first. We're working our way in terms of this love. Which means that there is a protection of love that's afforded to the world in our hearts because God commands it. The ministry of the church to its members is good for both the body and for the individual. Pastor John MacArthur detailed my final suggestion when he wrote this. He said, this is precisely why the church is so important. Keeping your brothers, loving like a neighbor... That combination is why it's so important. It's our duty as believers to help bear one another's burdens. When someone staggers, we steady the load. If he's straining, we help bear the burden. And if he stumbles, we lift him up. Helping fellow believers carry the weight of their worldly troubles is one of the chief practical duties that that ought to consume every Christian. Of course, that concept is contrary to the drift of our culture with secular society's tendency to foster self-absorption. So now we're, we're kind of working out, if you understand, what I'm using his words, kind of parlaying them or equating them to what I've been talking about. If I love my neighbor, then that means I'm not self-consumed 
or self-absorbed. I have to be absorbed with my neighbor. If I've never met Mike, I get to love Mike as a neighbor even before I love him as a brother. Alright? I owe Mike love because he's an image bearer of the living God. Even if he is in another country practicing another practicing a false religion, I still love him because in, within him is the image of God. We protect babies in the womb and the aged and everybody in between because they are our neighbors bearing the image of God. They are due our love. We owe them that, not because they deserve it, because God commands it. Our generation, on the contrary, has developed an unhealthy obsession with entertainment. We are daily assaulted with a plethora of trivial diversions. And here's the problem, I think, is that, and I want to use his words, is that the church is commanded by God to reach the world with the gospel and that a a part of that, a, 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 a stone in that whole edifice is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. But that the church of the 21st century is caught up in self-entertainment. The substantive work of the church is the love of the neighbor and the love of the body for the good of the kingdom. But what we do is just distract ourselves. With a plethora of trivial diversions, and we tend to interact with one another in sound bites or through faceless media. Now, this is old man John MacArthur talking about this, but he's so very rocked. Everything's pithy nowadays. Everything's a comeback, isn't it? It's never a conversation. It's never a you talk and then I'll talk. It's a, it's a statement. Sharp and cutting. Typically into an arena in which there can be little or no response, right? That's Twitter. That's a Facebook rant. You put it out there, you're not even responsible for it. That's the world we live in. We live in crowded cities and overpopulated neighborhoods, yet most individuals are more isolated than ever. See, there's something about the church that's anti-isolation. It makes a great point with that idea. Great point. We love our neighbors. We want to be our brother's keepers because we're not isolated. We're the opposite of it. We're joined together. We're not segregated. We are integrated. We choose to do this. I said that was one of those weird things. I remember talking... Uh, to uh, I think I mentioned it to, to my wife when we did it. We went one time to Temple and sat, Temple Baptist in Hesburgh, and I know if it's a great church with wonderful pastor time after time after time, but we sat there in those really great seats, by the way, really comfortable. It was awesome. It was like a movie theater, literally. They reclined a little bit, if I remember right. It was pretty awesome. But here's the thing. We couldn't do that here because everybody would be asleep. Um, so here's the thing. I remember sitting down and, and I said to myself, I remember saying, and I don't know if she may not, maybe didn't even hear me, probably not. That's why we've been married so long. Um, was this, said that I'm not sure the people who sit here even really know the people that sit around them. 
we make jokes about the Baptist church, about how everybody's got their seat and don't sit in their seat right. But as I've told you, I pray for this room often by seats because I know where everybody sits. And you all sit in the same place. And you know those people sit around you, don't you? Always. I bet they don't. The only connection people in really, really big churches have is what with the screen. With the screen. We have this, and God's blessed us with this, because we literally can know each other. There can, there, there's not even any awkwardness. We can know so much about each other. If we don't know each other, it's because we're not even trying. Because we have every opportunity to know each other. To the detriment of entire churches, the church of the 21st century has devoted itself to the trivial and to the sentimentalized instead of the substantive and the indispensable. We have literally fund and entertained ourselves into oblivion. And what Jesus did was pull aside 12 men and spend all his time with them every single day. What Jesus did was sit down in people's houses and eat with them and share with them. So that when somebody dies like Lazarus or he's dying, they sinned for Jesus. Because they knew Him. Because they knew Him so well. Our pattern is people so united that they just know they'll die for each other. But what we've turned it into is kind of a show. The vain pursuit of her own satisfaction has devolved into a climate in which church attendance is merely a quest for fulfillment in worship. Doctrinal purity our missional awareness, all good things. But forgotten among these ideas is the responsibility that each of us has for our family of faith. I said, if we come together and worship is fulfilling, that's awesome. If we come together and, and we absolutely feel the rush of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, our very souls, that is awesome and it is absolutely a good thing. If we come together and we just brag and brag and brag about the doctrinal purity of our, of our teaching and our pastors, then that's a, that's a wonderful thing too. I hope we are doctrinally pure. I hope everybody can go out and say, listen, my preachers, the preachers at my church, they preach the gospel. I hope you can say that. Our missional awareness, where we go, Nobody talks about where we go more than I do. I am so satisfied in Christ all the time with what He does through our members. A little bitty church with a giant footprint. But as much as those are really, really good things, folks, they do not replace the fact that we have a responsibility to each other. That we are really a family. We can have all those things and miss the family part and fail and fail miserably. But I tell you what, if we get the family part right, we'll get all the rest of it right. If I get in the pulpit and I preach like I have a responsibility to you because I love you and your family depends on me preaching, then guess what? I'm going to preach with all my heart every single time. I'm never going to mail it in. I'm always going to pray and always going to prepare. And I'll tell you something else. If you feel like, man, I've got to be there to hear Brother Tony preach or Brother Brian preach or Brother Kyle preach, because if I'm not, I will let them down, then guess what? You'll be here. 
we won't blow church off. And so many people do. Because we're not important. I'm not saying you're not important. I'm saying you think you're not important. Oh, they'll still have it. It doesn't matter. But if we realize we've got a responsibility to our faith family, we meet those responsibilities, don't, don't we? If you think you... Hey, look. If you think you've got to go to work to feed your kids, what will you do? You go to work. Because nobody wants hungry kids, do we? If you've, got to go, if you've got to do something to meet the needs of your family, you do it every single time because your family's important. We've got to start to see this the same way. I'm going to stop there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much. God, I pray that I have uh, done as, as much as I can tonight, Father God, and I pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless us with it, Father. God, I, I love what you're doing through this, Father God, and I pray, God, that I am preaching it appropriately. I pray, God, I know I can be so, so obtuse and so confusing. I pray, God, this is not tonight. There's just so much to, to talk about to close this out. So many loose ends, God, have to be brought together into that strong rope. And so, Father God, I pray now, God, that those that, that work is being done and that we can finish this next week, Father God, and that you'll continue to do mighty works, God, through this church. So in the, in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.